Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Dual Access Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Kriebel. I am the global head coach of the Data School, and I created this podcast to introduce you to influential people in the space of data. Today, I'm talking with Andy Kirk. Andy is a world leader, ex- uh, sorry, world leading expert in data visualization, and he spells it with an S, where I think it should be spelled with a Z, so we can have that discussion as well. <laughs> He's a consultant, trainer, teacher, author, speaker, researcher, editor of the award-winning visualizingdata.com. And in that case, make sure you spell it with an S because if you spell it with a Z, it's going to go to a different website. And which also has a book, by the way, but, (laughs) and uh, basically he does it all when it comes to data visualization. If you want to buy Andy's book, this is what it looks like. This is the first edition though, I believe Andy, right? So this is data visualization, a handbook for data driven design. That's, that's right. And this is the second edition just above my head. And then the third edition the third edition is in my head because that's okay, coming okay. next year or the year after. <laughs> What's changed between the editions? I've got no idea because I was okay. asked to do it. And when you get asked to do a second edition, especially, part of it is a little bit of unfinished business, tidying right. up things that you felt you didn't quite express as well as you could have done. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, typos are out. But a third edition is a whole different ballgame because I guess five years has moved on. I've moved on a little bit. So yeah. what can I do to just sort of stretch out my my latest thinking, I guess? Yeah. I think that's one of the great things about your book, though, is that it does kind of stand the test of time because it's about the fundamentals and it's it about is. teaching people how to be great and, and really understand data visualization. And there's one section in particular that I refer to quite often, and this starts on page 161. And maybe people can see it, maybe they can't, and I'll try to flip through. But this is your section on different chart types. Mm-hmm. And you go into great detail about explaining how to read them, when you should use them, what are some variations. Um, do you get a lot of feedback about that particular section? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly the – of all the sections, it's the most sort of pick up and quickly reference section. Right. The rest of it, as you said, it is more about the – sort of setting the scene for the decision making all the different mm-hmm. thinking that you've got to do the 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 kind of context the nuances all these sort of fingertips things that will have an impact on your selecting but yeah that section which is deliberately you know, there's a, if you see them the sort of spine the, the color kind of yeah. leads to the end so you can quickly yeah. pick it up and see what you're looking at that is something that i think people do find useful as a quick reference guide of right what could i use for this situation um because ultimately, you know, that is the quintessential activity in data is picking charts, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. How do you recommend people read your book? Do they read it cover to cover, pick out parts? Um, if you were new to data visualization, and, and this is one of the books that, I mean, I recommend this book to everybody. Um, how would you uh, recommend people use the book? It's a really good, great question because I was asked this by my editor at the time, and I I guess I didn't have a good answer because it, it felt to me like, <laughs> what do I do with books? Well, I, you know, sometimes I pick up a book and do read it cover to cover. Um, and this does lend itself to that because it is a process and it is something right. where, you know, chapter five won't make a lot of sense without doing chapters one to four. But right. the intended audience of the book is not just pure beginners also. And so if you are a beginner, perhaps you do need to go cover to cover. But if you're somebody mm-hmm. who's kind of intermediate, then you might just dip into the chapter that looks at color and think, you know, well, how do I kind of refine my color choices? Or you might dip into the chapter that looks at the the uh, sort of nuances of handling data because you might be skilled with data, but you might not know it in the context of how it affects data viz thinking. So I think the chapters can stand alone, but there is an implied sense of cover to cover to get the most out of that sequencing, I guess. Yeah. I guess that's the way that I approached uh, the first book that I read in data visualization yeah. was information dashboard design by Stephen right. few, which I imagine is the first book that a lot of people get introduced to. And, sent, sent, yeah. and I read a cover to cover, but then I still use it because there's, when I have a, sp- I, because I know, okay, this is the content in that book. I can refer to specific sec- specific sections. And yeah. I think that's kind of a similar approach that I would recommend people use for your book is it is useful to read end to end because of that process that you intentionally put into the book. And then it's a reference book from that point on. That's right. I mean, the thing that I outline, outline in the intro um, in how I want the book to be used is to mm-hmm. say, I want it to be, the corners to be folded. I want to see highlighted. Right. I want right. to see right. kind of 
almost damaged and be obviously yeah. used yeah. because if it's pristine, it's not being read. It's not being used. It's just sat, <laughs> sat there as a piece of ornamenta yeah. ornamentation. Yeah. So it needs to be something that does look like it's been through a bit of a battle yeah. once it's been yeah. uh, bought and used. Yeah. Yeah. You, you probably can't see it, but the spine is, uh, I need to move the camera. The spine has lots of creases yeah. in it. Yeah. <laughs> where you know, there's certain sections of the book where I want the book to be able to lay flat when I get to that section. Uh, so I, you know, intentionally, you know, make it, uh, I really kind of not break the spine, but, you know, really get the glue out of it so that it lays That's flat it. in that, in that particular it. section. Um, it looks like somebody is having a problem with the stream on LinkedIn, but it, yeah. if somebody's on YouTube and if you could uh, leave a comment, uh, I think every, almost everybody's on YouTube, but um, there was a connection issue with LinkedIn. So if you're trying to watch this on LinkedIn, go over to YouTube and, uh, and see if you can get to it there. I know when we comment, people on LinkedIn can't see comments. So, you know, right. not particularly useful there. Okay. Anyway, uh, let's, let's up to it. So I, you know, um, I didn't mean to kind of get distracted in, into your book, but I picked it up off the shelf again, you know, in preparation for this. So let's start with kind of the basics. Mm. And, um, a couple of weeks ago, I heard you speak at visit London and I forgot, mm. you know, kind of how, uh, like I'm always blown away by your talks because they're so practical and useful and, the way that you present is um, it's not like a lecture. It's more like a story along the way. And you always have like lots of really useful images and it kind of like, Oh, okay, well that makes sense. And that, you know, because of the way that you're explaining the context and everything, but we have to understand what we mean by data visualization in the first place. So how do you define data visualization? Yeah. So uh, my, my second simple single phrase is it is the representation, sorry, the visual representation and presentation of data to facilitate understanding. And I think that that last two words is, is crucial to this um, because, first of all, understanding as a, mm -hmm. as a concept in and of itself is quite ambiguous and enigmatic, but that's the case with all communication. Yeah. Um, it depends what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to shock people, persuade people, convince people? That's quite ambitious. Are you just trying to inform people, just to give them a sense mm -hmm. of a little nugget of knowledge of something? There's a wide spectrum of what understanding can be as an outcome. But facilitate, in my view, is the perhaps the, the, the most crucial word there because we can only do so much as the authors, the creators of DataViz, we do our job, hopefully, to find relevant analysis, to make it clear, understandable, elegant, trusted, and then we convey that and send it to somebody else. And then it's up to them. You know, it's it's a shared responsibility. We can only do so much as the providers, as yeah. the recipients. They've got to take that responsibility to look at it, read it, understand it, do something with it. And that's not always the case. So we can't guarantee the delivery of understanding but we can certainly do our bit on the side of the equation that we've got control over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Um, yeah, I think that's important for kind of setting the, the boundaries for the discussion. So mm. who does data visualization benefit? I, I think the answer is everyone, but uh, well, maybe not everyone, but who are the primary beneficiaries of data visualization? I mean, not to get too rhetorical, but I think it's anybody who doesn't know something in theory, because, Again, it, it doesn't have to be that any successful visualization is always revealing new things, but I think at the very least it should confirm something that someone might have suspected beforehand. But I think, it's again, it's on both sides because when I do a visualization, even if it's for somebody else, I feel smarter as a result of the process that I've gone through to acquaint myself with the data, to think of intriguing, hopefully, questions about that topic, and then to convey to, to others. I learned something on that journey, but hopefully the recipients also learn something. And so, again, it can be quite easy for us to say this in data viz world, but, you know, anybody, literally anybody mm -hmm. should benefit from this because it's just part of the armory of communicating as is verbal as is written as is any form of communication so this is just a, another strand to that bow yeah in a business context what are some of the ways that um, data visualization is is misunderstood or mm. maybe um misused i guess i think sometimes people i, I don't know maybe, maybe i'll just leave it at that i think there's three things that stand out instinctively the first one is 
people do it because they happen to have data and so why wouldn't you just make a chart of something <laughs> uh, and so you end up with this you know this deluge of charts i mean you know we talked about data this as a response to the deluge of data but now there's this sense of a deluge of charts about that data and then there's there's this kind of absence of curating what's actually useful and relevant that's first one the second one is they do it because um, words can be seen as boring, and so you might break up a report mm -hmm. with with, with uh, charts, graphics, images, just for the sake of trying to create a different rhythm, which in itself is not a sufficient uh, reason to do it. But then thirdly, I think the biggest thing for me is, and it's getting better, is just the simple absence of recognition of the term data visualization. I, I find often the language of infographics is sometimes known by more people but as we know, there's a slight different history of what that looks like and what that is as right. a format. I think the boundaries are blurring uh, as advanced techniques kind of uh, mature. But I think sometimes the the language that we use internally is not always recognized by the people who are a bit arm's length from the subject. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's almost a, I don't like a, a marketing problem that sometimes we need to address in the first instance to tell people what is DataViz and then, ah, oh, yeah, well, that's what we need. But we thought it was charting or we thought it was analytics mm. or we thought it was infographics and now they kind of understand it so yeah i think those are the three um bad things or barriers that exist yeah one of the other big barriers that we run into a lot is um you know we know as practitioners that uh charts and graphs communicate more quickly than tables for example mm -hmm. but um you know companies bring in new tools whether there's tableau power bi excel whatever it is yep. And they're so used to seeing things in a table that it can be hard to convince them that the importance of data visualization. How would you recommend people approach that discussion? Mm. And, and I think just before I get into the kind of answer, I think it's also a sense that there's a comfort that comes with seeing numbers and seeing yeah. values. I guess the and accuracy, think, right? People trust the accuracy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and just taking that a little bit further, I've experienced the context of scientists in academia who feel that their work will not be trusted if you are not seeing values, um, that somehow charts disguise or, you know, smooth over things. Well, you know, they, they reveal new things. And I think that's the thing. That's the tactic. It's almost that you have to show people the things that you can see about that table of data in a chart form that are otherwise, if not invisible, just really hard to spot. Whether it's the the trend, whether it's the most, the least, the typical, the absence of data, you know, where values do not reach up an axis, you know, from a, a simple display of uh, even a smallest table of data, you'll see things in a relevant chart that you use that otherwise would be missing. So I think it's just it's it's but you've got to do that as well as say we still need tables. And we still need values and we still need facts and figures and headlines and stats. But if you want to see things that are otherwise invisible, very hard to see, then we need charts as well. And I think it's that as well that's important for mm. sort of selling internally. Yeah. One of the other consequences or, or you know, linkages between uh, tables and, and, and uh, visualizations is a lot of times people will say, great, I like this overview, but I also want to be able to download it into Excel. Yeah. Um, and one of the biggest problems there is once it's in Excel, the data is out of control, right? You, yeah, you have no idea if the data integrity is there anymore. Um, do you discourage people from doing that? I don't think I discourage, but I just put these huge asterisks, <laughs> kind of warning caveats. <laughs> Alarms. Say, Here's what could happen. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I don't want to be, you know, in terms of discouraging, I don't want to be a hypocrite because I'm also the guy who wants the Excel download to yeah. do my own thing yeah. with it. And I've been that guy in the past in, you know, normal organizations that when I worked. But it's just got to, yeah, because, again, not getting too kind of principled about this, but in my view, trustworthiness is the fundamental pillar. Right. That It's non-negotiable. And so that's the risk. And as you said, if it's in the wild, people can miscount things. They don't understand the counting rules, the categorizations. They can do things with it that might distort the, the understanding. And I think... If we look back to kind of the era when we both kind of got into all this, I'm thinking about the era when the data blog from The Guardian was going going mm. big and they were publishing public-facing data sets and saying to the public, you know, go and explore this and find things. And 
it was great as a way to energize interest, but some of those data sets were quite technical and quite specific and things weren't in there and things were in there that people don't understand if you don't have the domain knowledge. So it comes with just a big health warning of how it can be <laughs> mishandled or mis, mis uh, kind of communicated. Yeah. How do you encourage people in your class? Uh, let's say somebody comes to one of your courses. Um, you know, I've been to your course. Um, and I, I learned so much at it. Um, but just coming to a course doesn't really do you any good. Right. That's right. So what are your recommendations for people to do after your course? You're absolutely right. I mean, we've all been on courses and we come back the next day all kind of super energized and then work takes over and we lose that sort of momentum. I think the first thing is to manage expectations that whatever we've taught, let's say in a day or two, doesn't mean that you've mastered the subject. Right. And also it doesn't mean that everything that we've learned or that you've learned, one has learned is relevant to apply right now because you might have learned something about, you know, fairly advanced thinking about color, but actually that's not yet something that you can manifest in your practice in the next day. So that there's that managing expectations thing, but then there's also, for me, the biggest thing is, is practice and mm. practice of course can exist in the workplace duties that you got you go back to do, but they may be more about, just running routines and kind of not doing a lot of let's say design work well where do you find those opportunities outside the workplace um yeah you know, makeover mondays you know all these different um disciplines and behaviors that we can get into through these kind of communal activities grab a data set that you're interested in about but i think the biggest thing for me and this goes back to where do we start with all this curiosity You've got to be curious about things. You've got to be, have questions about topics or things that you're interested in that you don't have an answer to. That leads to data. That leads to analysis. That leads to charts. That leads to understanding. So if you are not a curious person, you're going to struggle <laughs> to self-direct your own learning because that's the other key thing to all this, the difference between learning and teaching. You know, you can spend a, a couple of days in a class with me and I'm going to teach you, but have you learned? Have you... Right. gone there thinking where am i right now what are my gaps strengths weaknesses uh, and so it's a it is a journey you know that is just a one or two day download of what i believe is important you've got to take that baggage and run with it and don't drop it all in the process what's some of the best feedback you've gotten about your class like somebody taking your what they learned and really fundamentally changing either the way their company do things the way they do things um, their career what are some of the the, the really interesting, um, you know, those are the things that make you feel really good as a teacher, right? You know that. Yeah, absolutely. I think instinctive, the, the two that sort of jump out, the one which in, in a sort of roundabout way doesn't sound the most <laughs> celebratory feedback, but someone <laughs> talked about how they'd gone back and they'd killed loads of reports. They'd killed loads of dashboards because they realized they weren't relevant. They were doing it because they were going through the motions. Right. And so they went back with this sort of clarity, this lens of what are we doing? We're, we're doing it to help understanding. And all this stuff is not doing that. And I think that's quite brave mm -hmm. because organizations, in my experience, just add more reports, more charts, yeah. more analyses. They don't stop things. And that's something that I, I felt was, you know, that was a really nice thing to, to hear. But I guess the second one is, uh, and, and it's not just a, an individual person who's mentioned this, but it's the idea that some people might come to the course a little bit hesitant to think, is is this for me? Is this something that I can get into? Maybe they're a, a data person, but not that inherently creative, or maybe they're a creative person and not that, not that analytical. And it's those people who now come back after the course and say, I, I found a subject where I can bring my strengths that existed before this course but I know now know how to address those shortcomings or those things that they've suppressed because that's the other thing. And certainly something that I felt when I got into this subject, as a kid, I was into art and maths, but my career and sort of studies took down more of a mathsy, statsy route. Mm -hmm. So when I found data viz, it was this chance to kind of unlock a little bit of that sort of suppressed creativity. And a lot of people who do come on the course think, ah, finally, I've got um I've got like a vehicle to express some of those more creative attributes that otherwise I wasn't able to demonstrate in some of the other work that I did. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that sense of being able to to flourish in ways that haven't been unlocked before, I think, is a really nice 
really nice sort of sense that you've opened that door for somebody. Yeah. We're going to take that. We're going to take yeah. that route forward. Do you still do public courses? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'd say the, get in to sign up for those. I mean, the, the the best thing about that is that it's it it is literally every flavor of person, different industries, different roles, different levels of seniority. Um, because whether you're a hands-on maker of charts, whether you're kind of a supervisor, kind of coordinating others to make charts, or whether you're a recipient, somebody who's trying to be smarter from charts and graphics, there's different touch points in the organization, in any organization, and everybody's got data. So there aren't really any barriers, really. And so I do love the public courses because you get this wonderful collection of very random different person coming together. Uh, but yeah, certainly over the years, the, the tilting has gone from the public courses, which were dominant in my early years. And then now it's so many private courses because thankfully an individual might come to the public course, go back and say, we need to get this guy in to do a, a full class for everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of where the balance is at the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how does somebody sign up for one of your public courses? If they're interested. So generally speaking, I tend to advertise sort of one or two, upcoming classes on my website and they'll okay. be the details there at the moment i've got a couple of online courses different shapes and sizes um i'm dead keen to get back into more classroom sessions but i think just <laughs> the, the ongoing waves of kind of covid hes- hesitancy for mm-hmm. a lot of people is understandable and so the, i guess the virtual offers a, it's not a you know a sort of poor sibling it's still a, a, a wonderful platform to do these things mm-hmm. And you get different people in those because people who are separated by geography and time zones can now come to in together in a class that otherwise they wouldn't be able to get to if it was just a classroom physical event. Mm. Yeah, I find the classroom stuff. I was, you know, I'm sure you do as well. Being with the people in the room is so much better because you can read body language and it's the best. Uh, it is the best format, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, I, what do you, what do you think the key differences are between data visualization and data analysis? Because they're they're intertwined yet they're distinct from each other. Mm. I mean, on the surface, you could say that data viz is more the kind of output communicated to other people. Data analysis can be more about your acquaintance with the data. I don't think that's an exclusive definition, though, by any means. You could also say that data viz could and should be more about communicating findings and using charts mm-hmm. as a method to, to share things and point things out. Whereas analysis might be more about monitoring things and letting the audience decide what it means to them rather than you telling them what the findings are. So there are nuances, but I guess in my sort of 15 years in this subject, I've become less bothered about the distinctions classically. I think I mean, that's, that's probably a little bit of laziness on my behalf, but I do feel <laughs> that the boundaries are blurring so much between how people describe these things that it sometimes becomes a, a vortex that you get swallowed up in that you can't really escape from because there isn't really mm. a definitive answer to these things. But yeah, again, going back to people entering the subject, there is a comfort that comes from having those sort of boundaries and those vertical separations but I guess as you get into it more and more over time, you then think, ah, well, you know, that's a little bit of that and a little bit of that and a little bit of that. And it might be more about material differences. Is it static, print, digital, interactive, more so than uh, the usefulness of labels? Mm. I like to think of, the, of data analysis as, you know, kind of the critical piece before you do the visualization. Because exactly. if you don't do the analysis, how you present it really doesn't matter. Um, yeah. And when you're doing analysis, you shouldn't really care about the presentation. Yeah. Because you're just trying to answer questions and and yeah. you know make make in, find insights and things like that, and then Absolutely you right. figure out how to present it back to. So I, I think one kind of typically follows the other, I guess. But sometimes I guess there's no data analysis involved. You're just trying. Somebody's like, here's some data, build a dashboard with these things in it, right? Um, That's right. But hopefully, people don't get too many of those because those are pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> And then they give you a template. You're basically just kind of plug and play. It's That's like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody can do that. Yeah. Um, so in 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 your book, um, again, it's data visualization handbook for data driven design. Um, what did you learn while writing the book? Um, I learned that writing a book's a, a painful experience. Um, How long did it take that? you? Oh. 
it's, it's difficult to say simply because it was actually the second book I wrote. The first book I did years ago with, with oh, um, Pact, yeah. Pact, and I wouldn't say it was the most rewarding experience or illuminating experience, but it gave me a, almost a, a version one yeah. that then and I had the chance to. black and white too. Yes. <laughs> I'll never get over that, but still. <laughs> Thankfully, Sage found all four colours, the C, M, Y, and K. And uh, yeah, I, I, but I think... The the main thing I learned perhaps is what I didn't know. So mm. I, I, when you write about something or when you teach something, you have to you have to know it. Otherwise, you're just coming out with a script and you don't have that conviction. And so, for example, going back to things like the color chapter, I realized that my knowledge before writing the book was quite surface, quite superficial. A few tips and tricks, but nothing fundamentally truly understanding why certain colors work, why certain different color schemes work. And so by forcing to write a chapter about these different topics, you then say, ah, I know this pretty well. Speed writing done. This chapter, actually, do I know truly what I mean by different types of data? Do I truly know what I mean by the, you know, the different statistical models that you might apply to data? So, I think it's a it, it sharpens the lens of your own knowledge, and then you have to bridge those gaps and, and respond mm-hmm. to those by doing more research yourself, and then bring that into the book. So that's yeah. probably what I'm learnt most. Yeah. How much of what you created or put in the book is original? Because you know, I think about my learning and the way mm-hmm. I teach people. I don't think anything I come up with is original. It's more just I explain it a different way, or I understand it a different way. Um, I think that's but, it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, we are building on the work of our predecessors and the people who follow us will build on the work that we've done. But it's Mm. it's all about it's not repackaging in a in a cynical sense. As you said, it's about trying to find the language and the expressions that you would use to explain things. And hopefully that reaches an audience that other books before us and other um, teachers and academics before us maybe haven't just resonated and obviously each new era that emerges there's there's new techniques there's new thinking there may be new thinking in respect to uh, a, a kind of a slackening of rules that existed in right. the generations before but ultimately one of the things that I did try to do in, in my book is is kind of write it in almost my own tone of voice to find that mm. pitching of the subject but yeah I mean I you know, all these things behind me have shaped my understanding that I translate and pass on to others. Yeah. I guess that's one of the, the, the wonderful things about being a teacher is that you have to learn different ways to explain the same thing. So yeah. you're actually learning, you know, the teacher always learns more than the student, I guess. So every that's class right. you come out of, I'm sure you've learned something about, oh, okay, I should maybe try explaining it that way last time. I wish I had done that before because now I understand exactly. better. Yeah, that kind of and thing. And I think the biggest test for that is if you – if you could look back at um, footage of a class that you gave five years, 10 years ago, hopefully you should be cringing yeah. <laughs> the way that you <laughs> deliver things, thinking that I've moved on so much. You know, I, I'm now much more, uh, you know, I've got a better way of saying something. I would never do that again. But, you know, yeah. that's just progress, I guess. Yeah. One of the things that really stood out to me in, in the course that, uh, that I went to of yours was that um, you said that data visualization design is a game of decisions. What did you mean by that? There are so many different aspects to data viz, whether it's statistics, whether it's technology, whether it's um, kind of creativity and design, whether it's journalistic sort of sensibilities. But when you kind of blend all those together, I think ultimately what comes down to, to, to data viz thinking is making decisions about what goes on that screen or that page at the end. So what charts are you going to use and why? That's a decision. What color are you going to apply to those little tick marks? Miniscule decisions. Every pixel on that screen or page is your canvas, is your responsibility. So what you put on there, how you put it on there, and what you don't put on there is down to you. We often see data viz through the lens of some sense of it being kind of objective, but it's not. It's all subjective. It's all down to our our choice making. And so... Decisions are not to get too semantic with language, but decisions are about options and choices. Options are the things that you could do. Choices Mm -hmm. are the things that you will do and why. 
And that's kind of, for me, that's the essence of data viz. And so being advancing your data viz literacy is first of all, expanding the options that you are aware of, giving you a bigger menu of charts that you can make and, and deploy, but then having a, a, a much clearer conviction about why that chart in particular is the best one for the circumstances you are working to. Mm -hmm. So although, yes, there are technology, statistics, blah, 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 thinking that underlies all this, it comes down to decisions that we are responsible for making. You might go through and build maybe, you know, as you're doing the data analysis part of the of the mm. of the work, you might go through and build 20, 30, 40 charts, whatever, as you go through your design, mm. your sorry, your analytical process. How do you then decide what goes on the dashboard? Let's say that they output as a dashboard. Um, how do you decide what sh what goes on the dashboard and what goes out of the or what does not go on the dashboard? Yeah, what yeah. kind of the key thing people should be thinking about? I mean, I think what you fit on there, Andy, is the the biggest challenge in all data viz, um, because that is about content decisions, and mm -hmm. it's about sometimes fingertip judgments. To me, that you could summarise in a sort of Venn diagram. On one hand, what do you think would be interesting if you were on the other side of this what do you think mm -hmm. would be relevant to you to to learn something about a subject and where does that overlap with what you can anticipate or what you know is relevant to the audience mm -hmm. sometimes they don't know what they want they don't know what's interesting because you now are familiar with the data you might know right. things that they don't yet know so you you can take a lead and we do often talk about design for the audience but Sometimes they don't know. So it's fine for you to sort of plug that vacuum and say, I'm going to take the lead and say, I think this is relevant for you. But of course, sometimes you can sit down with that audience and say, what do you want? Why do you want it? What's What decisions are you trying to make with this information? Okay, well, I've got X, Y, and Z. I don't have A, B, and C, so that'll be something you get from somewhere else. But I've got these, and I think they're relevant. I think they're important. But it does involve editorial courage. Because as you said, you mm -hmm. might have 30 or 40 compelling views that you could impart but it may be that if you do show all those things actually you're serving no one's needs because it's just an overwhelming you know right plate of content so you've got to be discerning you're going to make mistakes but i think having that judgment of eliminating things is as, a, as important as what you will include yeah and it comes back to communication i guess then right you yeah. need to know with your stakeholders um you need to know what questions they're trying to answer with the dashboard. Right. Uh, so one of the things I encourage people to do is you can either put your user story as the, mm -hmm. you know, start with the, in the title of the dashboard, don't give it a title, put mm -hmm. either the question you're trying to answer 100%. or the user story. So for example, I was giving a, a demo earlier today to uh, London school of economics, LSE, and they wanted to know how I approach analysis. And I started with, okay, we're using a, um, a data set about, um, house prices in London. Mm. And my story was, you know, I'm moving to London. I need to live in the middle of the city because I need to have a short commute. I've got this amount, you know, my budget is, you know, whatever it was, and it needs to be within this distance of whatever, um, has to be a two bedroom or at least a two bedroom. Right. So I'm building this user story. Yeah. So when I create a dashboard, let's, you know, let's say that you asking me to build that dashboard. If I put something on that dashboard that doesn't help you answer that question, Oh, no, wait, I'm just wasting everybody's time. That's right. So I guess communication, like verbal communication, written communication is just as critical as what you put on the Absolutely. dashboard. And, and as you said, I think that practice of using a question structure for a title is, is great practice. Even if it doesn't end up being that title, at least yeah. in the sort of journey, you can use that as a sense check. Am I answering that question? Am I answering that right. question? No, I'm not with that thing. Now, that thing you might say it could still be useful. Well, stick it in a tooltip or stick it on page two or stick it right down the bottom of the page where you have right. to get to it if you want it. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that, you know, that sense of a content hierarchy is, you know, another part of this, which is that, you know, you might say, well, you know, four, four of these 40 things are important to include or relevant to include, but within those, actually the first two are more important than the other two. Mm. Well, size variation and positioning top versus bottom 
can help you to again sort of organize that for the audience so that you are saying these are more important than these but they're all relevant to include together yeah and if you think about you know when we talk about dashboard we'll think about car dashboard what's most important kind of all the time is probably speed Mm. what what speed am i going what's maybe less important right now is tire pressure but it's available if you need it to sort of check in now and again. Mm. So, you know, there, there is a sense that not everything is of equal importance, but it may be all relevant to include. Mm, yeah. And I, I encourage people to start with that question, but then, you know, especially if it's a business dashboard, don't leave it as a question, you know, because mm. that's just there for your editorial focus, I guess. Yeah. 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 Great. Okay. Um, what are the most uh, kind of the most fundamental concepts of, of uh, understanding data visualization? Is it data types, knowing data relationships, chart types, color? What would you think is, is the most fundamental? You only get to pick one. What is the mm. most fundamental concept? I think we have to go with data types, to be honest, um, mm. because, you know, when you think about the, the influence that those data types have on the mechanics of analyzing data and mm. then feeding the possibility of certain charts being viable and then the task that we always have to face which is to kind of maybe reconfigure data into different types you know if you want to extract from a a date a month element you know i think having that knowledge of data and i think the, the big thing there is some people kind of i don't want to use yeah okay some people are a bit kind of scared of data data isn't doesn't need to be scary because in most cases, for most people, in most situations, you're not doing much that's advanced in terms of statistical analysis or, you know, huge amounts of data handling. It's more just counting things, averages, distinct categories. So it's something that's attainable to, to anybody. But if you don't have that, you can't really proceed much further into this mm-hmm. process. So, yeah, I'd say, you know, one of those things, that would be my my one, I reckon. Yeah. I want to get into in a minute your um, uh, your data design, data visualization design methodology. But before that, I think it's it's important again to set a bit of context. How did you get started in data visualization? I was doing it before I knew I was doing it. To be honest, because I was, <laughs> I was very active in my sort of previous careers as an mm-hmm. analyst, working on developing charts and presentations and the you know usual things. Um, but I, I do remember vividly that. 2007, my boss came back from a conference, excitedly talking about spider diagrams. Andy, we need to make these spider diagrams. What the hell are you on about? Spider diagrams. Google. Oh, you mean radar charts? Oh, Steve yeah. Few. Oh, okay, there's a white paper about radar charts, pros and yeah. cons. Yeah. And it was the first time I'd, I'd just, I'd never even thought that there was even a study of or discourse around charts and charting. Um. And so when I found that and found the term, well, Stephen often used InfoViz, but he mm-hmm. found that term, I thought, ah, this is a thing. This is brilliant. I've been doing it horrendously, looking back, uh, but enthusiastically, you know, as a, as a sort of a chart smith. You also didn't know any better. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you don't know until you know. So it was a wonderfully enlightening moment of both disruption and also this sense of, ah, there's a thing here that I really want to sort of throw myself into. And again, because it was this sense that it was a bit of a mixture of, you know, elements of creativity and and Mm -hmm. small amounts of artistry, but then also this fundamentals of data analysis and statistics. So that's kind of how I got into it in terms of recognizing the subject. And then I won't go through the full story, but managed to find a way to study the subject through a a master's by research whilst working at a university. So self-directed learning, Love the subject, start the blog to keep keep writing about the subject publicly, mm-hmm. and then commercial opportunities emerged from that and thought, right, let's go freelance and see if this is a thing. And thankfully it was a thing. And, and here you are. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah so we, we got we got started right around right around the same time then. That's right. Um, I was April eleventh of two thousand seven, uh, approximately. Um, I think yeah. I <laughs> almost the same time. I mean that was my wife's birthday, so I would have remembered that day. But uh, yeah. Do you remember your wife's birthday? I did. Yeah. I wasn't did, discovering do you remember that day. her birthday. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, there's non-negotiable. <laughs> Chiseled on your forehead. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was the first book you ever read? It would have been Stevens. Yeah. Uh, Dashboard design, because as I said, that was the website, um, perceptual edge. 
yeah. that I came across first. And then obviously the book was there and, and grabbed that. I mean, it might have been a matter of days after that before I bought Tufty's book. I mean, you know, it's, it's the typical story. Yeah. Most people have come in via, certainly in our era, most people came in via the sort of Tufty, Stephen Few direction or maybe the David McCandless direction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in terms of books, at least, but yeah, that was that was the first kind of book or two books. I yeah, I, I bought those same books first, and I started reading the Tufty books, and then put them down because I found them kind of I found the explanations over compl- overly complicated. Mm. Where I found mm. Stephen's methodology much easier to Practical. follow. Where yeah, yeah, you know, his process of here's why something doesn't work, and then showing you, and that's exactly what I do with Makeover Money. So I just kind of stole his idea and turned it into no, a right. you know, eight year long project now that I, <laughs> I still enjoy, fortunately. So, that's yeah. great. Um, <clears throat> um, so you've trained thousands of people. Um, mm. How do you keep yourself motivated? Um, I mean, going back to your point about the Makeover Monday, I still enjoy it. And I'm perhaps mm-hmm. surprised that I do because not because the thing isn't enjoyable, but I am somebody who does get restless about doing the same things. But I think the thing is that what changes is the field around us. And so new examples, new um, case studies to refer to energize the content side. And I'm, I'm always learning. So I'm always trying to improve things mm-hmm. and tweak things. So that means that the, the delivery side is changing from my perspective, but then the audience are always different and their difference brings different questions, different challenges, different levels of excitement. So all that energy that keeps me going into, I think I'm uh, 366, tomorrow will be my 366 event in Belfast. And that's what keeps it still fresh and, and as enjoyable mm-hmm. as ever for me, really. Yeah. And I just, again, I do, I'm not a, a teacher by training. I'm not a trainer by training. I've kind of ended up in it, but I do just really enjoy that sense of, helping others to understand yeah. something. It's not about preaching or, you know, here's the here's the dogmatic Kirk doctrine that you should follow. It's here's just my take on the subject and hopefully that will help you kind of mm. give you a leg up into the subject. Yeah. I think everybody named Andy must have started in two thousand seven. Because I think it, that's yeah. when Cockrave started as well. So. <laughs> then, then, the, then they close the door for Andy's there. After. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 the, that's the limit. You can only take so many Andy's at the same time. Um, how do you keep up with new trends then? Oh, well, this is this is a, an interesting challenge these days because there's so much stuff. I mean, back in mm. you know the early 2010s, I kind of almost knew every every new chart that was published and every new project, but. It's much easier to follow. Yeah, much easier. You know, RSS feeds. You know, kids ask yeah. your parents about those, um, and then twi- Twitter did a good job of kind of being a, a platform where most active data these people were sharing stuff. And so, yeah. again, you can't follow everyone, but you can follow people who themselves will act as curators on your behalf. Right. And then I guess this last few months has just been a bit more disruption with the sort of Twitter's, I don't know, shift of quite a few people. Bit of a di- sort of diaspora now of people in different places, so it feels like a challenge. It's not a challenge to find stuff because it's all it's all out there. Yeah, that's still. But there, to yeah. feel like you're, but to feel like you're seeing it all is now ever more difficult. So, I guess you have to just relax and say, well, if I just still keep on top of the key people, um, or people who feel like they're at the hub of that sort of mini community, then at least I feel I've got a route into that um, mm. that subject. But yeah, it's. It's brilliantly overwhelming that the amount of stuff that's out there and the amount of people doing cool things. Yeah, great. I'm, I want to come back then to your your data design data. I keep just mm. calling it data design methodology, data visualization design methodology. Um, and there, there's four steps I, I want to talk about. Um, the first one is establishing the visualization's purpose and identifying the key factors. Um, one of the things you talk about is trigger versus intent. What does that mean? Mm. So I remember you had this matrix. One side was trigger, other side was intent, and then yeah. you had exploratory and explanatory. And I still refer to that. I mm. show it to people all the time because I think it makes perfect sense. How did that kind of come to you? That that sort of quadrant. It it it's kind of this idea that that the, the starting point of a data viz can emerge from different places. It can be that you yourself have been motivated to. To, to explore something and it's a, maybe it's a passion project or you you are yourself curious and you're going to go explore it but it can be that others commission you to do it and you often, mm-hmm. you almost have to inherit their requirements inherit their curiosities um 
or they've asked you to do something and they don't really know what they're after. So you have to, again, plug that void. So the trigger is almost where did it come from to initiate even the start of the of the mm-hmm. journey. But the intent is more about what what is it you're trying to achieve with it? And we go back to that okay. point about understanding as an outcome. Well, this can be a wide spectrum of outcomes. So is the intent to shock people, persuade, to support decision-making, to um, enlighten, to entertain? I mean, there's different pathways that we can take. And so where you start is one thing, but where you end up or where the audience ends up is a different thing. And so it's to try, you know, the whole point of this process is, is to get a sense of your, what you're in it for, what you're trying to do, and where's it come from, because these are all things that will have an impact on your mm-hmm. decision making. Yeah. I think about that. I, I just had this picture come in my mind of the, you know, I believe trigger and intent go left to right on your on your diagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and it almost feels like the communication, the communication gets richer and richer as you go left to right. That's right. Um, so Absolutely. trigger is, you know, here's, here's, you know, I don't know. It feels like you need to communicate more and more to understand the intent. Um, that's right. I never, never really thought of it that way before. So, um, yeah. And I think it's important to mind. say that intent can evolve as you go through the yeah. process, because it might be that as you start out, you've got this intention, but as you get close to the data, it's changed a bit. Um, not just the content that you might share, but the kind of the whole communication kind of experience. So yeah, I, I, and, and indeed, you might end up with several intents. I mean, if you think mm-hmm. about, you know, something like COVID as a topic, you, you know, if you are the custodian of analysis, well, on one hand, you might be serving a bit of a dashboard, kind of a, a monitoring system. Mm-hmm. But then you might also want to do something that's more of a, a story about here's the kind of latest findings. And then you might also want to do something that's quite emotional, you know, and hear the stories behind those numbers. You know, if you think about the different journalist organizations who were monitoring this stuff, they were serving lots of different outputs. So intent isn't just a singular thing. It can be several different pathways that your work is trying to serve. Yeah. And I guess as you're going through and if that intent changes, that's where communication with your stakeholders becomes even more important because they have to understand that it's that what they thought the intent was can't really happen, right? You don't have the data to support that intent. And that's where you get into that iterative process where the communication is going, you work on something, come back to the communication and it's just, you know, the, the, um, not the data analysis, not the data visualization, but the communication is probably even more important than those two because if you don't... Well, it is. And I think it's important to remember that communication is two-sided. It's what you impart to others, but it's also listening and being kind of amenable to listening, Mm -hmm. feedback for comments, for evaluation, and then sort of taking those things on board or not taking them on board, but saying, actually, I take your point, but you've missed the point. And this is what we were trying to do with X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And then the other axis was explanatory versus exploratory. Mm. Um, is it important that before before I ask you to explain that part, is it important that you understand the trigger and intent before you decide on exploratory or explanatory or does it all go together? I think it all goes together, which is why it's kind of difficult to unpack into separate pockets. But yeah, I, you know, I, I think what's so what's also evolved since that version of the book is a, a third aspect, which is exhibitory. Which is almost this sort of no man's yeah. <laughs> it's almost this kind of in between state whereby so explanatory is when you use charts and and graphics to to say something to to point out things to communicate mm-hmm. to people what's important and the graphic is almost a prop but you're using colours to highlight things you're using markers to point things out as you would if it was a a slide and you were physically pointing at yeah. things. Exploratory is when you give people a tool to let them do that themselves, to find things, to discover things, to play around, interrogate. Exhibitory is this kind of in-between state, which is it's neither explicitly saying something, nor is it a tool to explore it. It's just a chart. And that's a little bit dangerous if the audience doesn't have the domain knowledge to know what to find and to know how to interpret that stuff. Sometimes it's fine. Certainly internally, if you're just creating a chart for a colleague you don't need to go elaborate with you know lots of captions and conclusions and heavy annotations, but you're just making a chart. Pass it on. Ah, oh, yeah, perfect. I get that. You don't even need to make it exploratory. So the, there is there are you know these three now different almost. It's not so much format, but it kind of is. What's the kind of format of the communication that you're that you're delivering? And you know, again, the 
the intent may shape that, but your discoveries from the data might make you think, I need to make this explanatory. It was going to be exhibitory. Mm-hmm. I want to make explanatory. And that changes the intent as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you can, you can start with it as explanatory, but make it an exploratory dashboard, for example. Well, that's they, right. You can blend these together. With filters and, and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And if you go back to the COVID thing, you know, you might start out with a piece of analysis that sort of says, here's the latest headlines and, co- and uh, observations, but then low down the page, enter your country, your city, your postcode, right. and find what the story is where you are. And then you can explore it, change the parameters, right. change the times. Yeah, yeah. Great. The second step was about acquiring, preparing, and exploring your data. So mm. acquiring, I think, is pretty straightforward. you got to find the mm. data and just get it together, right? Download mm. the data, whatever. Yeah. So the next step that you, um, that you explain is, is um, examining the data. Is mm. that data analysis or is it something else? Going back to the earlier answer about what's important, this is about understanding literally the kind of properties, the the physicality of the data. Okay. <clears throat> how much you got? How many columns? How many rows? How many records? What's the range of values? The min, the max, the typical. How many distinct categories have you got? Um, what's the length of the labels? You know, so what's the length of the country names? Because if you've got um, the former Yugoslav um, of uh, Yugoslavia. Sorry, former Yugoslav Republic, I think. Yeah, Republic of Macedonia. I think. Right. Forgive people. It's really long from Macedonia. Yeah. It's long. That label has to fit on a table or a bar chart or a map. So it's kind of just understanding almost the mechanics of the data, not the the underlying semantics of what it's saying, what it means. It's about what's the kind of mm-hmm. physical material that we are working with, and then you can move on to explore it and then you can move on to find out what's in there that's important or relevant but it's just to get a sense of the material that you're going to be working with okay and then we get into transforming the data so that's Mm. both for quality and then also getting it ready for analysis so you might need the data wide you might need the data tall depending on how that's right analysis but um you need to you know so you've you've gotten into or so what are some of the things that um that are typical when you're doing data transformation. It's not necessarily reshaping the data. No, it can be things effect. like, suppose you've got countries and you think, actually, I could do with continents. Well, either you can manually go through and, and update those or you go get a separate data set of continents and countries, do a lookup, do a join. You might do things like, um, let's kind of continue with the COVID example. If you've got number of cases and you've got populations, you might create a new f- column, which is, case rates per 100,000 or per 1,000. So it's getting the data into shape for its eventual usage. Now, the thing is, with this step, you may not yet know what the eventual usage is. Mm-hmm. So this is something that does continue almost all the way through to the final step of making a chart as you get the data into the shape, into the form that you need to serve the analysis, the stories that you're going to tell, which you may not yet know what they are. Mm-hmm. Another important aspect, I think, is understanding what to do with nulls. So I see a lot of times, you know, people will, you're looking at sales data, for example, and you have a null. Well, does null mean zero or does null mean there were no sales, right? They're yeah. different things, right? So yeah. um, how do you think people should approach that? So that's a very specific example, but how would you approach that specific example? I mean, this is something where, I mean, I, I'm obsessed by, I've done quite a few talks about the design of nothing. And that includes <laughs> zeros, null, kind of n slash a, yeah. empty, empty, right. and these all mean these all mean subtly different things because you know a zero implies we know that this is nothing, we know this is zero count. Um, an empty cell is a red flag. It means well, where's that data value? Do we do we know it? Is it mm-hmm. implied as zero? And so the the biggest thing for a, an analyst is is to not just dismiss these as all the same thing, that there are nuances. Again, I'm trying to avoid the example, but COVID, a zero. Zero might mean that is a true zero. A null might mean we've not yet received the data about that thing. And that's mm. a very different situation. And so how you handle that visually later on is very important. But from a data handling point of view, unless you are sufficiently domain knowledgeable about that thing to be able to make judgments about what those different things mean, You've got to consult with people who may know the data set better or the subject better to say, you know, what what does a a zero mean in this context? Or what does an empty cell mean in this context? Because 
they are dangerous things to dismiss as all being part of the same thing. Yeah. And so if you don't have the knowledge, find others who do and consult and listen. You've mentioned during your COVID examples, like you might find a data set, this population and make it like per thousand. And that helps normalize the data across right. different areas, but it also helps contextualize the data. Yeah. Um, when I think about providing, yeah, I, I try to encourage people when they're building dashboards to always provide context. So yeah. sales of 642,000 doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You need to have something. What is it versus yesterday? What was it versus last year? Same period right. last year, whatever it might be. Um, and I try to get them to always say compared to what when they put something yeah. in the deck. And it could be a chart even, right? You might have a bar chart, but you know, you need to say compared to what. And maybe it's exactly. just an average line. Um, yeah, yeah. What kind of questions do you do you use that same question or what do you how do you encourage people to include context? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. And and that compared to what is by default my my also my approach as well, because you know, compared to what is is this big, is it small, is it normal? Is it surprising or not surprising? Is it going up or going down? Mm. And, and these are all things that are just part and parcel of the analytic mindset of being curious about numbers. And in a sense, this discussion leads us on to the, the next step of my process, the editorial thinking stage, mm -hmm. because the way that I try and think about this is almost like a photograph of your data. And sometimes we take photographs of scenes that, slightly misconstrue what's actually happening at that moment. My example, and I'm speaking to a, a football fan, my example I often refer to is this uh, famous photograph of Diego Maradona, who was photographed with six Belgian defenders around him, and it makes him look like the Belgians were so obsessed by stopping Maradona that they just sacrificed six guys to stop him. The photograph's a bit of a distortion. It's not. It's out of context. It's a photograph of a f moment when a free kick was taken, those six guys were already stood together. He right. was already stood nearby. They weren't chasing him, yeah. Exactly right. So when we think about charts, for example, think about them as photographs of your data. And is the photograph, the frame, where you include stuff and exclude stuff, is it at the right position? Mm. Are you too zoomed in? Are you too far out? Are you showing too much stuff that you can't see the content? And so these are decisions that don't have a right or wrong answer, by the way, but you've got to feel what's the most trustworthy vantage point that gives people a true understanding of what they're seeing and what's big, what's small, what's important, what's less important. Mm -hmm. And that hopefully is a mindset to get into. But again, there isn't a right or wrong for this stuff. It's your your judgment call to make. Mm -hmm. And the last part of the process that I, that I want to ask you about is the, so you've, you've analyzed it. Well, sorry, you, 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 you established the purpose and the key factors. You've prepared the data, you've explored yeah. the data, you've provided some editorial focus, and now you get to conceiving your visualization design. So it, it feels to me like, you know, 95% of the work is the stuff before you do your design. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and it never yeah. Um, so then, you know, you go about conceiving your design. Do you start with a sketch or maybe a question? How do you get started? Yeah, I mean, I, I do start with sketches often, maybe a little bit earlier in the process when something's just bubbling in my head because inevitably mm -hmm. when at any point in this process, an idea might pop into mind about something you've seen elsewhere, right? something that you want to do, something you've had an idea around, and, and sketching is just dead important. And that doesn't need to be pen and paper. It is for me. I mean, some people find sketching most fluently done in, in R or in code. Right. Whatever your tool does, it doesn't matter. It's not elegance. It's not beauty. It's just an idea out of there onto yeah. where, wherever. But for me, yes, questions are everything because questions lead me to the first part of the design decision, which is what charts do we need to use? Because a chart is a visual answer to a data question. So li listing the questions that I'm trying to answer at this point is, is fundamental to them being able to at least narrow down the chart options, if not the chart that's best served to answer that question. So that will be my definitely my first step. Mm -hmm. We've gone through the whole process now. Um, what's changed over the years? Is it still pretty fundamentally the same? I think it kind of is. Um, yeah. And I, th I think what's perhaps the only thing that's probably changed is recognition that often there is a lot of kind of going back over this yeah 
Yeah. Uh, maybe the, the data process, surprises yeah. you or it disappoints you and it kind of changes the intent or you get into the chart stage and you think that's just not it maybe i need to go back and revisit the questions that i'm yeah. answering so that you know it isn't just a one two three four stop done it's a one two three four and then maybe bounce back to two and maybe to three then back to one right it's an right. iteration but the the process for me is two things it's the first occasion that you think about these things, not the last, at each step. And it's also an attempt to create efficiency when you need it, when you've got deadlines, when you've got something that you've got to get through as elegantly as possible. And you might have to accept that this will not be the singular perfect solution, mm. but it's the best that you can do in the most efficient way, given the circumstances that you're facing. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, let's move on to a couple of a uh, couple of fun questions. Mm. Um, what does a typical day look like for you? It's interesting. So I've, I've often thought about what this was. I've had a few people in the past who are freelance or freelance newbies wanting to find out kind of how I manage my day. And every time I think about that's the typical day, and then a new day turns up, and oh, that's changed it. <laughs> let's let's take sort of today and tomorrow for example. So today I've done. A bunch of emailing before nine o'clock mm -hmm. just to kind of respond to queries. I've done some boring paperwork, invoicing, supplier forms. I've responded to some student questions. I'm teaching at UCL and master's course. So a bunch of students are asking me about the assignment, trying to respond to those. I've done this podcast, this, uh, this stream, this broadcast with you. I've prepared materials for my course that I'm delivering over the next two days in Belfast. I've had to change my car park at the airport tomorrow because my car's broken down, so I'm using a different car. So much of this is not doing data viz. So little of my day is actually doing the thing that I'm always thinking about, talking about, doing. Right. And so more and more, especially this year, I have the ambition of trying to carve out more time to actually do the thing that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, client projects will cause me to do that. But I also just want to find time to do my own things. Mm. to make mistakes, to keep practicing, to try and find another tool that enables me to do X, Y, or Z chart type. Um, just to do things about topics that I've got, you know, passions about. Um, I mean, the, the, the biggest project I worked on ever was this project to visualize Seinfeld, oh, this God. huge book of analysis. <laughs> that was something that wasn't a client project. It was all down to me, but finding the time to do that, you know, was a bit of a, a, a pain point. So, mm. I want to keep practicing because I enjoy it, but also because it makes me better. Even mm. if the output is full of mistakes, well, they are things to learn from. Mm. So, yeah, a typical day is, is a, a broad repertoire of things, and I like that. You know, you talked about in the intro, I'm doing lots of different things. I like having that diversity of different things that I'm involved with, but I need to remember that the whole premise of this is data viz, and the more I can do that, yeah. all the better I'll be at all these other things. It sounds like you're you're great at time management. Do you, do you use particular tools for task management? I don't actually. I simply use a Word document and a to-do list okay. and a system right. of sort of themes or topics and then color coding for the kind of urgency of that task. I've often dabbled in different time management tools, but then the managing of that tool becomes the task itself. <laughs> this has always ended up being the sort of the most reliable going back to sort of yeah. technique that yeah. I found work. Yeah, I, I use Todoist and I, I love it because I can just throw a task in there and I can either assign it to something or it's just a task. It's something I need right. to do later. Yeah, um, but I, I like to have a lot of structure. Of, okay, I need to have this done then, right? And there's my <laughs> there's my five minutes to focus on that, on that thing. Um, who's been the most uh, influential person in your life? And you can't see your wife. Um, and also, who's been the most influential person in your career? Hmm. So the boring answer could be, oh, I, I take influence from many people. I let me let me just sort of pin down an answer. I probably think my granddad has been one of the most influential people, just in terms of how he conducted himself professionally, how he dealt with people, how he often tried to find fun out of situations. Mm -hmm. So I think personally, I think would you know? I mean, obviously there, there are many people. You know, yeah. we are brought up by a village, but yeah. If I had to pick one person right now, I'd say my granddad. Um, professionally, I don't know if I can answer this with a single person because there are times when different parts of my career have been really 
inspired by different people, whether it's yeah. going back to the starting point, Tufty and, and, and Fuse, the entry points, whether it's people down the down the, the, the journey, people like Georgia Lupi, Stephanie, you know, just being so inspired by how they've branched into this new kind of creative world. So I don't think it would do justice to give it a single answer because I think the biggest thing in Dataviz is to be open to be inspired by lots of different people then you grow and you develop and you become something that isn't just a, a sort of boxed in personality it's something that you're taking from lots of other people uh, around you so yeah that would be my boring answer sorry for that one. Oh, that's okay so one more question this comes from my my last guest um mm. so her name is um uh, Trevini Gandhi, and she works um, in AI. And we talked about the ethics of AI. And I ask mm. every guest to leave a question for the next guest, but they don't know who the next guest is. So I'm going to ask oh, you wow. to do the same thing as well. So her question is, describe the last meal you had that blew your mind. <laughs> <laughs> can, can it be a meal that I've made myself? Are we allowing, are we allowing that? It doesn't have to be a um, restaurant meal. Oh, that's that seems that seems like cheating. You can't you can't pick yourself. That's like saying your favorite okay. person is you. Right? <laughs> See, the answer I was going to give was uh, a pork loin that I made on a barbecue before okay. Christmas. It was the best thing ever. But I'm not allowed <laughs> that, so I won't give you that answer. The last meal that I we yes we were in um, Parma in Mallorca in September. Mm-hmm. Brilliant city. So many cool restaurants and bars, and there was this. Um, um there was this chicken and, and you might think you know chicken there's only so much you can do with chicken yeah. <laughs> but this chicken you just you, you put it into your mouth and it just it kind of just collapsed and it melted and it was i can't remember what the sauce was it was like some kind of sort of orange jus with a little bit of soy soy in it and it was incredible and it it just turned up on a plate you're thinking oh yeah this is just chicken. chicken yeah but then it had the kind of the crispy skin next to it and it was just <laughs> three out of the four of us had it on the table, and we were all just sort of looking at each other, going, Can you know, I no know. words were spoken. It was just like we're all sharing this experience. So I, I'll go for that. If I can't go for the barbecue pork, yeah, I'll yeah. go for that. I can't remember Great. the restaurant name, unfortunately. And, and what's your question for my next guest? Okay, um, let me think about this because I guess it will always be the things that I'm curious about. Other people, I, I, I do think. It's a question that I've been asked myself, but I am always interested in other people, which is what kind of uh, drills or what kind of tactics or exercises do you use to be creative? Is it is it about where you are? You know, going back to the talk you mentioned about visit, I'm kind of really fascinated by inspiration right now. So is it about the circumstances? Is it like being in a calm room with music? Is it about being in nature? It's about being somewhere cerebral. I love when I'm in London. I love working in the British Library next to this huge central column of books. It just makes me feel smarter than I actually am, but that helps. Um, so, yeah, the question is, what drills, what circumstances, what situations do, do you put yourself in to be creative and to practice creativity? Great. Thank you very much. Um, if you enjoyed this interview today and you're watching on YouTube, please give it a like. Um, it helps other people find it as well. Uh, this will also be available on um, all of the podcasting platforms, hopefully later today, maybe tomorrow. Um, Andy, thank you very much for joining me. It was great seeing you My again. Um, Likewise. And thanks for taking the time. Thank you.